Hello, and welcome to the Strategica podcast from the Hoover Institution, analyzing the intersection of military history and contemporary national security concerns. You can find us online at hoover.org forward slash Strategica. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and today we examine the topic of the most recent issue of Strategica, Vladimir Putin, Russia, and Ukraine. And I'm joined now by the author of one of the pieces in this issue, Ralph Peters, strategic analyst for Fox News, author of 29 books, including several volumes on strategy and military affairs, and of course, a member of Hoover's Military History Working Group. Ralph, thanks for being with us. I'm delighted to speak with you again. Now, your piece at Strategica is entitled Vladimir Putin, Murderer of Myths. The idea here being that Putin has given the lie to uh, a wide array of these sort of vacuous shibboleths that Western elites tell themselves. This is how you get a shocked John Kerry declaring that Putin is operating in 19th century fashion. So let's take these each in turn and you can explain both the the myth and how Putin has exposed it. Myth number one, individuals cannot change history. Only the broadest human collectives do. Explain that. And and that's a very curious myth for the left to believe in because – Obviously, they believe that President Obama was going to change history. Certainly, President Obama himself believed it. But generally speaking, in the 20th century, um, it, it comes out of the Marxist left. The notion arose that really history wasn't about the actions of individual great or terrible men or women, but rather it was about human collectives, the power of the people. And you had, so you had the Anal School in France, whose influence is still felt very much today. The idea that what we really needed to study was not individual human beings, but rather harvest results, trade patterns, um, structures of everyday life, to use Fernand Brodel's phrase. And all of that is important. And the Annal School certainly made a contribution to helping us understand history. But at the end of the day, or the end of the dark night is a case that often is with history, the decisions, the power, the force and fortitude, uh, the ambitions of one individual can change history still. We certainly saw it from Alexander all the way down through Napoleon to grim 20th century examples such as Hitler and Stalin. But now we see it again with Vladimir Putin. And it wasn't supposed to happen. In the mythologizing of the uh, bi-coastal intellectuals, such as they are in the States and the Europeans, it was all supposed to be sort of, uh, the world was going to turn into a giant European community, a giant EU, where faceless bureaucrats working collectively would decide things uh, for the betterment of uh, we poor mortals who couldn't understand these complex issues because we didn't go to the right prep school. And here comes Putin, a man of fire, a man of force. So I do not like Putin. I, you know, I don't think I'd like him for a dinner companion or a pal on a fishing trip. But I must respect and admire this man because he took Russia, which was flat on its back. And in less than 15 years, he restored this broken country to at least the semblance of a great power, a remarkable achievement for which he is not given credit. And the West just continued to write Putin off as uh, an apparatchik uh, or a chinovnik, which is Russian for a petty bureaucrat because of his KGB background, forgetting that Napoleon had been 
<laughs> a mere lieutenant of artillery. Hitler had been a lance corporal, the equivalent of an army PFC in the German army. Uh, it's unlike the beliefs of the American intellectual left. Your greatness is really not determined by which prep school you went to. So here is Putin riding roughshod over the new world order that in which so many of us believed. And he is proving that through force and ruthlessness and ambition and, yes, vision, one man can change the world. And I think that is one of the most important things to we must grasp about Vladimir Putin is, you know, despite all his boorish behavior and his crude language and his topless selfies on horseback, this is a man with a real vision, a powerful vision, and a long-term strategy for realizing that vision, while we are visionless and certainly have no strategy worth speaking of. Well, that brings us very elegantly, actually, to the second myth. Barack Obama, at the outset of this conflict, it's not clear to me anyway what he hoped to gain by this, but he mocked Putin for not representing any ideology, to which Ralph Peters says, dead wrong, which brings us to myth number two, nationalism is dead. Right. And, you know, our president, speaking in the Netherlands at the end of March, <clears throat> made that wildly incorrect statement that Putin has no ideology, thus betraying an ignorance of both Putin and ideology. Um, Putin is a great Russian nationalist. Um, and great Russian has a very specific meaning we can discuss later if you'd like. But anyway, his ambition is not to restore the Soviet Union. He knows he is not going to get Eastern Europe back in the near future as much as he would like to have it. His ambition is to restore the empire of the czars. And he's very much a Russian nationalist. Be behind his demeanor and the almost reptilian um, persona he projects, he's actually very passionate. And he is far less in common with someone like Leonid Brezhnev than he does with the Russian tradition of Ivan Grozny, Ivan the Terrible, uh, or Peter the Great, or Catherine the Great, although German-born, nonetheless, becomes a Russian nationalist. This idea of the czars, of the great czars of the 19th century, to expand Russia, um, and it's always about Russia, and also about the Orthodox faith. And that's another thing. With Putin, he has no interest in communism. He was a KGB operative. He understands from the inside that communism didn't work. Marxism-Leninism didn't work. He's worked, working out a new form of statism with some uh, um, raw capitalist um, aspects or, um, or techniques employed. But nonetheless... He is much closer to the traditions and beliefs and vision of the Russian Orthodox Church than he is to communism. Again, Putin is a great Russian nationalist, and in that sense, Vice President Biden was unwittingly quite correct that Putin is a man of the 19th century, because nationalism's heyday, of course, was the mid-19th century through the mid-20th century. And as I try to stress to people... Uh, nationalism is the only ideology, the only ism, that may have killed as many human beings as Marxism and its deformed offspring. Right. Ralph, two decades ago, Cold War ends, Soviet Union comes down, and there's a sense in a lot of intellectual circles that th this is the moment where things will change, that Western mores 
Western institutions will be a solvent for all the old pathologies of hostile, paranoid Russia, which brings us to myth number three, which you write – you define as humanity can be socially engineered to reflect our liberal values. Yeah, and that is a very important myth to the left and, and not only to the left, by the way. The neocons certainly believe much the same thing about Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, because we do not study history, certainly not the history of other cultures, because we gloss over the the bloodiness, the, the brutality, the carnage of history, um, and here I'd have to give a nod to the great book by Victor Davis Hanson on, on, on culture and carnage, uh, which tried to get at this issue, as others have done. But history, to quote William James, history is a bath of blood. And yet, <clears throat> our intellectuals, who, <clears throat> I beg your pardon, did not study history, just blindly assumed that by pressing the right buttons with the right aid programs, with the right scholarships, we could reform humanity uh, in our own image. And, of course, we have written off the power of religion. Uh, an agnostic or atheist elite doesn't believe in religion, so we see our leaders going through all sorts of acrobatic contortions, trying to deny that Islamist terrorism has anything to do with Islam and so forth. But also the issue of national and cultural characteristics was written off. The idea that, well, national culture, to the extent it may exist, is really an artificial construct that can be done away with. And so, in the early to mid-1990s, those of us who, had, who spoke Russian, who had studied Russian culture, who had spent a great deal of time in the former Soviet Union or the so-called New Russia and newly independent states, we tried to make the logical argument that the fall of the Soviet Union did not mean that Russians would stop being Russians. Indeed, they did not stop being Russians under the Soviet yoke. And I personally was wildly attacked for this. How could I be so prejudiced? How could I be so ignorant? How could I be such a Cold War bigot? But, but people do remain. I mean, even in Europe today, Germans still have certain characteristics. Italians have certain characteristics. Norwegians have certain characteristics. And they may be caricatured. They may be exaggerated often. But they are there. Clichés about people, about nations, exist for a reason. There's some basis to them. And in the Russians, of all the human beings I've dealt with, all the cultures on every continent except Antarctica, um, the most self-destructive culture I have ever encountered is that of Russia. It is, it is astonishingly uh, paranoid, self-destructive, uh, cruel, um, and, and uh, also with so many uh, members of the Western intelligentsia. They fell in love with the Russian literature and music and painting of the golden and silver ages, the late 19th and early 20th century, which I love. I love Turgenev and Shekhov and Tolstoy. Um, I love the music of Mussorgsky, uh, the paintings of, uh, of, of Rapin and then so many others. But that Russia died in the camps. It was exterminated in the gulag or driven into exile. And what we are left with now is the Russia of the Chorninrod, the common people, the, the the rough, brutal Russia that that just bowled on through even the Soviet years. And if you look at Russian cultural products today, they are distinctly inferior. I wish it were otherwise. I wish we'd have a new golden age, a platinum age of Russian culture. But Russia has such in 
powerful internal issues to face, psychological and profoundly physical with the uh, early death rates, vodka, tuberculosis, AIDS, etc. But all that, all of it does come back at some level to the idea of national characteristics. So nationalism, uh, I personally would have loved to see it die. I watched us revert after the end of the Cold War to a world where the wars were no longer about ideology, but about blood and belief, about ethnicity and religion. But when you marry ethnicity and religion, the deformed child is nationalism. And we are seeing a recurrence of nationalism, a resurgence of nationalism, spearheaded by Vladimir Putin, and we should all be very, very worried. President Obama comes to office in 2009 talking about a reset with Russia. Five years later, here we are. And Ralph, you ascribe that progression partially to myth number four. Negotiations are a miracle cure, the universal solution, asking only patience and understanding. Not so much? Well, when you have, as we do now, an administration made up of academics whose life is built around talk, you have the idea that, well, it's all a, it's all a faculty lounge debate. Um, we're governed by people who never had a bloody nose. If their child gets a bloody nose, it's time for a lawsuit. Uh, they are so fantastically divorced, whatever their race or ethnic background or religion, they're, they're privileged. They're so fantastically divorced from the reality that most human beings face on a daily basis that they just don't understand how brutal this world can be. I mean, we always hear them say that, oh, you cannot put a price on human life. In much of the world where I've been, Human life is as cheap as, as cheaper than a pizza. Sometimes it's as cheap as a piece of pizza. I mean, it's it's just astonishing how cruel the world would be. We Americans are so blessed and fortunate to live in the relative safely safety in which we live. But even not all Americans get to live in that safety, as, as we very well know. So this notion that you can talk a solution to a solution of every problem. I like to say negotiations of the opium of the chattering classes. Look, negotiations are wonderful in their place. If you're trying to hammer out a trade deal with Japan, uh, if you're trying to uh, settle a, a mild boundary dispute or work on tariffs, but when you're dealing with someone who has a, a, a long-term, ambitious, and aggressive strategic plan and a ruthless determination to reach those goals, such as Vladimir Putin has, negotiations just fall apart. And Vladimir Putin, in his almost 15 years in power, has won every single confrontation with the West. Every deal negotiated with Putin has resulted in a loss for the West, certainly including the Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty, proudly negotiated by President Obama, in which Russia gave up nothing, and we gave up important dual-use systems. And it goes on and on. Putin will use our negotiations against us. For instance, addicting us to a supply line through Afghanistan that runs through Russia. Addicting our space program to Russian facilities and capabilities. Um, addicting Europe to Russian uh, natural gas. This man is not a rube. He may speak crudely and act crudely by our standards, but his strategic maneuvering his use of force and, <laughs> when we insist, negotiations 
has been absolutely masterful. Thus far, he has been the Bismarck of the early 21st century. Finally, uh, myth number five. This is something you've actually heard on the left and the right, specifically with Ukraine. On this issue and on any number of other tough issues in foreign affairs, there is no military solution. You call this sort of a, a slightly more intellectually respectable equivalent of the war is not the answer bumper sticker. Yeah, and you know it depends on the question. And you also hear the undergraduate howler that you know war doesn't change anything. Well, on the contrary, war changes quite a bit. And throughout history, war has been, unfortunately, mankind's primary, primary uh, tool for solving or resolving uh, major problems. Um, you, you know, human nature is as it is. When human beings become frustrated as a collective, they often resort to violence whether it's organized or disorganized, whether it's the use of armies or the use of mobs, or sometimes both. Violence is one tool in the human repertoire that is not going away in the near future. And, you know, there are certainly problems to which there's no military solution or no practical military solution, but our reflexive insistence that no problem ever has a military solution is sheer madness. History, the 3,000 years of recorded history, uh, demonstrate otherwise. Shall we insist that the American Civil War made no difference? That World War II made no difference? I mean, it, it, it's just idiocy. Oh, that the Peloponnesian War made no difference. Uh, war does make a difference, perhaps not the one the people who started the war always intended, but warfare makes a difference. And when you get to dealing with religious terrorism, for example, um, over 2,000 years of documented history of religious terrorism, of religious religion or insurrections inspired religions, revolts based upon religious fanaticism, there's not a single example in any culture in 2,000 years where a jihad-type insurrection, where a religion-fueled fanatical revolution or uprising not one example where it's been put down through negotiations and compromise. Every single one had to be put down by killing the hardcore believers. Now, I wish it were otherwise. That's not a pleasant thought. But 2,000 years of history does, does have something to tell us if we're willing to learn. And when it comes to Vladimir Putin, this horribly unattractive but indisputably great man, this great leader, uh, he has realized that there are times when the military instrument is very, very effective. His invasion uh, of Ukraine was absolutely masterful. Hardly a shot fired, but it was a military invasion. Now you have his creeping invasion of east, uh, eastern Ukraine. I, mean, I, I meant of Crimea, if I said Ukraine. His invasion of Crimea was masterful. But now you have his equally uh, masterful but more challenging in um, invasion through subversion, subterfuge, and sabotage of, of the provinces of eastern Ukraine. And with the conventional military poised on the border as a threat. I mean, there are many uses for the military instru instrument. Some are direct fire, you know, attack. Others are just the, the, the visible threat of the military. You use special operations forces in cities such as Donetsk or Kharkiv. He's had less, ex less success in Kharkiv, in Donetsk, Slavyansk, Mariupol. And his operatives, um, using a, a long-established network of local sympathizers, 
provided with arms, are, are, are demonstrating yet another use of military force. And in the end, he may use blunt military force, but our insistence that no problem ever has a military solution is ahistorical uh, and is absolutely foolish. And the quickest way to get yourself in a disastrous war is constant appeasement and denial that force ever has its use. The, the, one of the lessons that other lessons history teaches us is the sooner you stop a dictator, the lower the cost in blood. All right. Our guest has been Ralph Peters, strategic analyst at Fox News and member of Hoover's Military History Working Group. You can read his piece and those by other members of Hoover's Military History Working Group by visiting Strategica at hoover.org forward slash Strategica. That's S-T-R-A-T-E-G-I-K-A. Ralph, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org. Perfect.